0: notice that some things smell one way to another people and to one people person and different to another person you know um, freshly cut grass for some people it makes them think of going to a golf course for other people it's like the drudgery of mowing that comes back to them you know for uh, some people their pets You know they they love the smell of of their pet, and other people maybe don't love the smell of their pet. (laughs) One of my favorite smells is 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 opening a new can of tennis balls. I mean, you hear that pop of that metal, and you get that aroma of all that petroleum coming out of there. You know, it's like wow, this is good. You know, other people look at you going, "What is wrong with you?" No, wait, now I know what's wrong with you. You've been sniffing tennis balls. I understand. Yeah, you know some people even may have different feelings about coffee i just had someone the other day say to me i think coffee feels, smells like a skunk i'm thinking are you kidding me coffee's one of the greatest smells god invented you know when you when you walk in and there's coffee brewing it's just so awesome like i love coffee so much that the, there have been times where our basement has flooded. It did a few weeks ago, as I know some of you as well. And after it gets dried out, I go buy coffee and I sprinkle it all over the floor of the basement. And it absorbs the smells, but also this awesome coffee smell down there when you walk in the basement. It's, so this is a DIY thing for you. You can take that home and use it if you want. There will be a run on coffee at the, at the grocery store. And, you know, for someone, some people, I had someone say to me recently... I love the smell of manure. Yeah, that's what I said too. Really? I said, yeah, because I grew up on a farm and and it just makes me think of family. And it makes me think of all the the fun and joy I had growing up in that environment. And every time I smell manure, it takes me back to that. And I said to them, that's great, but I suspect there are other people that have a different take on that than you do. And Somebody was listening to the conversation They said, well, you know that there are a lot of people that don't like that smell because if you walk into Yankee Candle, you will never find a candle named manure. It's just not going to happen. You can't buy that kind of candle. I've been thinking about smells lately and just how different they are to us. And it made me think about what it must have smelled like in the temple. You ever wondered that? I mean, I, I worked for two years at a meatpacking plant when I was in high school. I kind of got a good feel of what the, all of that smells like. I had friends. You know, I remember one guy, he was a big football player on the, one of the high school teams. He worked there one day, and he couldn't take it. He couldn't eat. He said, I just can't take the smells. It, it's just too much for me. But, you know, there are smells that. And I keep thinking, you add fire to that, and you start, you start burning that. And I can't imagine what that smelled like. And, and, you know, I often, uh, for years I thought, well, the temple is this great place. There's all this sacrificing. And then you're around that kind of thing happening and you start thinking, hmm, maybe that wasn't such a great smell in there. And maybe that's why when God says to Moses as he's setting things up, he says in Exodus chapter 30, in that passage you read a few moments ago, every morning when Aaron maintains the lamps, he must burn fragrant incense on the altar. And each evening when he lights the lamps, he must again burn incense in the Lord's presence. This must be done from generation to generation. Maybe one of the reasons for that is because it makes the place smell better. There's another place in Exodus where God says to them, when you come into the, the, uh, the holy place, you burn incense because with incense, if you've ever been around that kind of, of thing happening, there's also this, this smoky kind of haze that's connected to it. And he says, it's going to be a buffer to protect you when you're in God's presence. But what really fascinates me is that when we come to Revelation and John's image of what he sees in the heavenly realms, there's incense. Chapter five talks about it. And here we see it again in chapter eight. But here it has serves a completely different purpose. In Revelation John says I looked and and there were there was an angel with a censer burning incense and the incense was it says earlier are the prayers of God's people and here he says the incense is mixed with the prayers of God's people. And this incense becomes symbolic representative a visual of God's people Coming and praying, and all of our prayers being mixed together. There is an image there that I think is important for us as we think about prayer. I mentioned to you last week that sometimes when I think about these things, I get some strange ideas. And this week, the idea that came to my mind was an episode of I Love Lucy. Now, I know many of you might not have been alive when that was on television. Some of you were, but you've probably seen reruns of it. If you do a search on the Internet for the best episodes of I Love Lucy or funniest episodes or whatever, there's a top ten list, and usually they're about the same. Usually there is the chocolate factory where Lucy and Ethel go to work in this factory putting chocolates into boxes and... Trying to prove to their husbands that they can do it, and the conveyor belt starts going faster and faster, and they can't keep up, and they start stuffing the chocolates in their blouse and in their mouths, and you know it's just chaos. So, of course, almost all of her episodes end in chaos. And another episode is Lucy wants to do a co- TV commercial, and so she is given the opportunity to do a TV commercial for this this tonic product, Vita Vita Vegimen. I'm going to say that once because I've I pract- I've been practicing that, Vita Vita Vegimen, and 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 they, they keep. Messing up the takes. She keeps messing them up. And every time she does a take, she takes a little sip of this tonic. And what she doesn't realize is that it's 23% alcohol. And so by the time she gets to the 50th take, she's a little bit tipsy. And she can't say anything. And again, chaos. But the episode that came to my mind is when Ricky and Lucy are traveling in Italy. And Lucy gets a part in 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 a movie called Bitter Grapes. And in order to prepare for that, she gets a job stomping grapes. Maybe some of you remember that episode. I don't, that episode of all the episodes, for some reason, that episode is stuck in my mind. And here is Lucy in this big vat with these other women stomping grapes. And it ends, of course, in chaos. But what struck me about it is that it, it strikes me as something similar as what we see here in Revelation it's the mixing together. And, and I think, you know, if you eat grapes, they, they, if you eat them off of a, a clump of grapes, they probably taste close to the same. But I bet there's just a minutest difference in every single grape. That's how God created things. And you start adding other vines to that and, the, and you, get, you get other tastes. But what makes the product that people really want is putting it all together. It's mixing the grapes, as in the episode, stomping the grapes. It's meshing them together. That's the end product that people want. And there is something in that image that I see in Revelation of the mixing together that creates this atmosphere, this aroma that God says, this is pleasing to me. I love it when you pray. I love it when you pray. I love it when you pray. But what I really love is when all of you pray. What is a pleasing aroma to me is when your prayers come together. I wonder sometimes if Revelation 8 isn't the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Where he says, Father, make them one as we are one. Let us disappear that we might together create this pleasing aroma to god and that oneness doesn't eliminate our uniqueness god created us unique it's unique it's such a great thing we have different personalities we have different gifts and abilities and likes and dislikes and the ways that we do things and we all pray differently we all connect differently but the oneness of our prayers is in jesus The oneness of our prayers is that they are focused in our God who calls us to pray. And our prayers take on a whole new meaning when they're together. And I'm not sure we always see it that way. Which is why I think praying like this is an acquired smell. I think it's something we have to learn. We don't need this kind of community of praying because we sinned. It's because we sinned that we ignore the reality of what God wants from us as people who pray together. This is what the kingdom looks like. Jesus says, make them one. That's the kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, God, make us one as you are one. And where does Jesus get that idea? About making us one as He is one in the Trinity. I mean, the the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, do not relate to each other as Lord and Master and Servant and Slave. They relate to each other eternally in love, in relationship. And when God says in Genesis 1 let's create human beings in our own image. What he's saying is, let's create relational beings. Let's create beings who relate to us and who relate to each other in love and grace and compassion and truth and all the things that make up healthy relationships. That is the essence of the Trinity. And there's works of the Trinity as well, but the essence of the Trinity is relationship. And the Trinity is not just an appendage to our faith. It is at the center of our faith. Jesus says, make them one as you are one. Maybe that's why when Jesus answers the disciples' question, Lord, teach us to pray, he does not say, here's how you pray. My Father who art in heaven, give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. But instead, he says, our Father who art in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not a coincidence that Jesus uses plural language. There is something in that teaching that that reveals to us the essence of 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 the ultimate purpose of our prayers, and that is that we would know God's will together, that we would want God's will together, his kingdom to come together, that our prayers would be blended together in the grace of God to be a pleasing aroma to him. And it's so easy because it's been ingrained in us to think otherwise, to say, well, that's great, but it's really about me. If I just have me and Jesus, I'm good. And the gospel keeps telling us, me and Jesus is important, but that's not good. That's not enough. It's bigger than that. It's wider than that. It's more than that. Because if it's just me and Jesus, I don't really have to think that much about other people. And the gospel is about us loving God and loving others. And in this kingdom oneness, our focus together is on Jesus. John Wesley said that the end of, of human existence is not justification by faith. It's perfect love. I mean, when the kingdom is established as God intended it, it's perfect love. And he goes on to say, because we weren't created for a courtroom, we were created for a family. We weren't created even as citizens for citizenship. We were created for sonship and daughtership. It's about relationship. As I was pondering this, the thought that came to my mind is, is um, a practice that you may have differing opinions about when you were in school or are in school, you get, you're in class, you're doing well, you're working hard, the grades are coming in and you're pleased with that and, and, and it's, it's really progressing in a good way and you get down to the last two, three weeks of class, the third, the last part of your grade and it's a big part, it's 50% of your grade and you realize that that part of your grade is a group project and you're like, if you're if you're an overachiever, you can hear the groans going through the class as you say that, right? And, and nobody really says this, but they're thinking, I don't want that slacker to influence my grade, right? I mean, and and, and I understand that, you know. Because we work hard, we've done what we can do, we, we have given ourselves to this, and, and we are we're making good progress. And now, I have, now my grade is contingent on how well these people do their job. And I know these people. <laughs> can I have different partners? Sometimes you might ask, right? And we struggle with that. Because we're convinced that our greatest successes are what we do on our own by ourselves. We value independence so much. And I've been pondering this. I'm not sure independence is a biblical word. Freedom is a biblical word. I'm not sure Independence is because ultimately to be holy is not to be so good that we are independent from God. But that we are ever more dependent on God. And on each other. And that's the nature of the kingdom. In some ways you could say the kingdom is this great big huge group project. That's why. It's an acquired smell because it doesn't come naturally to us. And I think one of the struggles that we have with group projects in general when we're sitting in a classroom is because we're afraid it's going to affect our grade. And everything's about the grade. I understand that. We want a good grade. Grades are important. And I wonder if maybe we transfer that over to our walk with Jesus And something in the back of our minds is thinking, ultimately, it's about what kind of grade I'm getting from God. What am I accomplishing? How successful am I? How much am I getting done? How valuable am I? And we use all these metrics to... We put these metrics into God's mind about how he's going to evaluate us. When all the while he is saying... It's about relationships. I mean, I don't know how Paul could be any more clear than he is in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians when he begins by saying, if you do all of the greatest things in the world, if you accomplish the most amazing things in the world, but you don't have love, it is meaningless and useless. Because it's not about success, it's not about accomplishments, it's about relationship. And at once the relationship is in our minds where it should be, then we find that the success and the accomplishments can follow. We just have a tendency to turn a thing around. And I know that relationships are hard and Being in community is hard and we think to ourselves, I could do this a whole lot easier by myself. I could do this a whole lot better by myself. I could be more successful. I I could accomplish more if I didn't have to worry about all these other people. And sometimes as parents, we're tempted to say that when our children want to help us. And then I think about... But think about the kingdom as a group project. There is no one who had to put the brakes on in order to be a part of the group more than Jesus did. I mean, you talk about working with slackers, right? And I'm not even talking about the 12 disciples, I'm just looking at us, right? I mean,. Jesus could have done anything, everything as quickly as in the blink of an eye, he could have solved all the world's problems, he could have finished it, period, done. But that's not the way God works. It's not the way, I mean, look at God's work through the, through the centuries, from the very beginning, God wants relationship with people, and He is willing to even pull back the reins on what He can accomplish to have that kind of relationship with us. And He calls us to have that same kind of relationship with each other as being created in His image. It's almost as if God is, is loath to do anything by himself. He wants people. And what I find fascinating is when I begin to understand that and I begin to grasp that, then the relational element of the church takes on a different dimension. And it doesn't mean that the difficulties aren't still there and the hurdles and the battles and the struggles, but I begin to see that when there are successes, when there are celebrations, they're so much better. You know, there, there have been times through the years when, you know, I, I have watched my favorite team win uh, some kind of championship or, or something won. I remember in college watching Indiana win the basketball championship, and I was sitting down in the basement. Nobody, None of my friends cared about it, and I was down there watching them win this championship and, you know, celebrating by myself. And it was fun, but, you know, I was by myself. But a couple of years ago, when the Cubs were in the World Series and won the World Series for Hundred years or more, and John and Andrew are huge Cubs fans, and I didn't used to be, but I became one because of them. And so we were sitting down in Andrew's apartment, and the game went extra innings, seventh game of the World Series. This is it. This is for all the marbles. Are they going to be able to break that curse that's on them and win the World Series? And when the final out was made and they won, we just exploded. And we jumped into each other's arms and we danced around Andrew's living room. And we (laughs) fell on the couch and, you know, and and we rolled around and yelled and screamed. and, And it was so much better celebrating together. I could have been home, but it was so much better being together. And we were just talking about it the other day. And somehow, if we could get that into our minds, that that. The the relationship of the church. Maybe that's why Psalm 133 says how pleasant and beautiful it is when God's people live together in unity. God is blessed by that. It's a pleasing aroma to God. And I don't think our prayers are any different. That we find joy in connecting our prayers with other people's prayers. We find joy in praying with and for each other praying together for the needs of our lives and our world. When we first started, the first year we did the, the prayer vigil. We were kind of talking through things. And, and some people were asking questions about it. Of course, it was brand new. And, and some people said, well, do we have to come to the prayer room when we sign up? Or can we just pray at home? And we decided that if it's at all possible, even if it's the middle of the night. Coming to the prayer room is better. That's our goal. That's what we really want. That that if you sign up for an hour... Come to the prayer room because there is something about being in that space that connects us with other people. When you prepare to go in, somebody else is coming out. And when you come out, somebody else is going in. And when you're in the room praying, there is this sense that there have been lots of people who have been here praying before me. And there will be people here praying after me. And there is something connecting and unifying and thrilling about being a part of that. And when the successes come, it's for all of us. And there's joy in that. And we need to embrace that. It's a gift of God. The beginning of chapter 8 of Revelation says that it's the opening of the seventh seal. It's different from all the other seals. The first six seals are open. There's noise, chaos, activity. But when the seventh seal is opened here... John says there was silence in heaven for 30 minutes. That's a lot of silence. For 30 minutes, the angelic choir stopped singing. For 30 minutes, the elders who are around the throne praising God day and night ceased. For 30 minutes, nothing but silence. No one really knows why. There are theories about it, but John doesn't tell us. But I wonder. I wonder if those 30 minutes of silence are a time set aside for God's people to pray. To pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. For pray, To pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. To speak words of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. To bring their prayers all together in one place. And after they're done, the angel picks up the censer and, and fills it with their prayers. And mixes it with the prayers of the saints through the ages. And it becomes this pleasing aroma to Almighty God. And I'd like for us to try that this morning. We won't do thirty minutes. Three or four minutes. I suspect it might feel like thirty minutes, but what I'd like for us to do is to spend three or four minutes in silent prayer. We're going to put the prayer of confession. Well, you actually, you have the prayer of confession in your bulletin. We're not going to pray that. Uh, we're not going to pray that together out loud. We're just going to let you pray that in silence. You may want to look at the back of the bulletin where there is the missions moment and there's the persecuted church and there are a number of prayer concerns. You can think about what Don shared earlier. There may be other things on your mind today. We're going to take about three or four minutes of silence to offer our prayers together to God. Prayers in the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts